Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Reg Noland. It is entitled, The Lifelong Learner and the Potter's Wheel of Experience. Reg. It's a cold, damp day outside. So why are you here? Why not home in some nice warm bed, snuggling up in a blanket somewhere, snoozing away? Why are you not here? We're here because we had a moed at an appointment time with God to praise him, to worship him, to learn from his word and his messages that he sends through his minister vessels, to fellowship with like-minded learners, who share their experience for the edification of all. We are here to keep an appointment with our creator, the big boss, to attending a weekly professional development seminar, if you will, on how to be a better disciple. Have any of you ever looked up the word disciple in Vine's dictionary or uh, the Strong's Concordance or something of this nature? In Hebrew, the word disciple comes from uh, 3928, it's called emud, uh, and that comes from uh, 3925, meaning instructed or accustomed, disciple, learned it, taught, or used. The root word of that uh, of Strong's 3929, which is the base of the word disciple, is a primitive root. Properly, it means to goad, like a prod, to poke someone, uh, to teach him by instruction with the rod, to poke him, to say, here, do this way, or poke him this way, make him go one way. It, is an, uh, it means, very simply, to teach or to learn, to become skilled at something. Uh, to instruct. In Greek, the Greek word that is uh, translated as disciple is one I'm kind of fond of. It's mathetes. Okay, of course I'm a math teacher, so it's spelled M-A-T-H-E-T-E-S, all right? So it's mathetes. I was pleasantly surprised to learn that the word math actually means to learn, which is interesting. Okay, uh, it comes from uh, mathanos, uh, to learn, from a root word from math indicating um, in contrast to uh, diascalus, which means a teacher, one who follows. So the learner as opposed to a teacher. In a wide sense, it was used of the Jews who became the adherents of, um, of John. It was specially used of the 12 apostles. It was used of all who were manifest by his, as being his disciples by abiding in his word. And the acts that were those who believed on him and confessed his word. However, in the, a disciple was not only a pupil, but he was an adherent as well. Hence, they are spoken of as imitators of their teachers. They want to become like them. So they want to become effectively their teacher. Uh, in a modern educational parlance, a disciple would be called a lifelong learner. That would be the modern equivalent of that. One who continues to develop his mind throughout his lifetime. So let's explore what it means to be a disciple of the modern world. To fully understand that, we first need to go back and uh, discover what God's purpose for humanity is. So let's start at the beginning with the creation of man. In Genesis 1, we see God's recreation of the earth and the purpose for its existence. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth after its kind. And it was so, Genesis 1.24. Uh, now, 
Let's look at the creation of man. A little bit special from for the other creations. This is Genesis 2, verses 7 through 15, or 7 through 8, and then 15. And God formed man from the dust of the earth to the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became, became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put man whom he had formed. Let's get down to verse 15 now. And uh, the Lord took man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Although he could have done so, God did not merely speak us into being. Rather, our creator knelt down by the riverbank and personally formed us with his own two hands, playing in the mud, even at this very early day, mixing the miry clay together to form man, his fingers fashioning our features, forming our bones, shaping our muscle. That being who would later walk with Abraham as Melchizedek, priest king, priest king of Salem, would talk with Moses as the deliverer of the law at Mount Sinai, and would walk among us as Jesus Christ and sacrifice his life for our creation. This same being made us personally. So, why bother? Why go to that much trouble? He could have just as easily spoken the word and brought us into being by fiat. Why did he go so much trouble? Like a potter working with his clay. Why He is fashioning us in a different way than he fashioned the other creatures. He is fashioning us after his kind, after the God kind. And that special kind of creation demands a different kind of development, a development of character over time, not just some kind of programmed automaton. Turn to Genesis 1, verses 24 through 27. Already there. Okay, and God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after its kind, cattle and creepers and its beasts and the earth after its kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and all the creepers upon the earth after their kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have the dominion over the fish in the sea, and over the fowl of the, of the heavens, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over all the creepers or creeping things on the earth. And God created man in his image. In the image of God created he him. He created them male and female. Now, the mystery of mankind is that God is recreating himself after his kind, through mankind. In other words, as I've said before, mankind is the larval stage of the God kind. Mankind is the larval stage of the God kind. Look, go to Psalms 8, verses 3 through 9. This is the... the David's reflection on what man is in, in comparison to God. When I, uh, verses 3, when I look into heaven, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little, made him like a little from God, and have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yes, and the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, and the fish of the sea, and all that pass through the paths of the sea. O Jehovah, 
our Lord. How excellent is your name in all the earth. We see here uh, the writer of Hebrews echo this uh, later. Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 11. For he has not put into subjection to the angels the world to come, of which we speak, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? That's the passage we just read. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and with honor, and set him above the works of your hand. You subjected all things under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he did not leave anything not subjected to him. But now we do not yet see all things having been subjected to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for all. For it became him for whom all things and by whom things all were created, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the captain of their salvation through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, and for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Eventually, we will all become God-kind, children of God, complete with bodies, made of the most powerful substance in the universe, which is spirit, but which I really think is probably dark matter, the stuff that they scientists can't account for yet. Uh, and we shall be like him, for man was made to be like God. John, First uh, John three, one through uh, two. This is a familiar passage we all know. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now are we children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he, it sh he shall be revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And he wants all of humanity to be his children, because all of humanity who ever lived, all 14 trillion persons, is still just a drop in the bucket compared with the vastness of the universe. He wants us all to be his children. Okay. The, uh, second, uh, second Peter 3, 9 confirms that. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some people would count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. However, our creation... Our being of the God kind was not complete with our physical creation. As I said, this was only stage one. This was the larval stage of, of the God kind. Rather, stage two consists of becoming God kind, involves developing godly character, which is not something that can be created by fiat, but comes only through experience and time and the, the suffering that comes along with it. Hence, our physical lives are a proving ground, a testing ground, a workshop, if you will, during which we learn to choose the good and reject the bad, to make choices that are based upon the principle of love and concern for other people instead of that of greed and self-centeredness. I suppose that God could have made us a um, pre-programmed, uh, already pre-programmed for goodness, 
but such a creation would have produced a, a race of robots or automatons. It wouldn't have produced children like he wanted with free will. It, it, with the freedom to choose the good or to reject the good. He wants us to choose him out of love. You see, being God beings with great power, which you... Being God beings brings with it great power and with it great responsibility. If you put that power in the wrong hands, you're creating a very dangerous situation. A very dangerous situation. What would it be like if God had just given the power to, say, people who were egotistical and selfish and uh, self-centered, that sort of thing? So feeding upon self-aggrandizement. That kind of thing would not have contributed to a, a, a beneficial universe. It would have led to chaos. Think that's ever happened before? Our physical lives, then, are like what computer technicians call a burn-in period, okay, where hardware is left running continuously for an extended period of time to see whether any of the components fail before we have committed data and documents to the machine. If the components fail, then the machine can be repaired or discarded before it damages the entire network. Just so, if we demonstrate a repeated pattern of, of failing to choose the good, then we may too have to be repaired or discarded. What's his method of refinement? Several times scripture compares us to clay in the hands of the potter, just like God kneeling down beside the riverbank to form us from the very beginning. The scripture repeats this theme. Turn to Isaiah 64, verses 8 and 9. But now, O Jehovah... You are our father. We are the clay. You are our former, and we are the work of your hands. Do not be grievously envy. Do not be grievously angry, O Jehovah, nor remember our iniquity forever. Behold, look, please, all of us, we are your people. Romans 9, verses 20 to 26. No, but man, who are you who replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me this way? Does the, not the potter have the power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel to honor and another to dishonor? What if God, showing, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of the mercy which he hath made uh, he hath before prepared for glory, whom he called not only us of Jews, but also of all the nations. As he said in Hosea, I will call those not my people, my people, and those who are not beloved, beloved. And it shall be in that place when he said to them, you are not my people, there shall they shall be called the living, uh, the sons of the living God. One more of the Jeremiah, uh, verses 18, or chapter 18, verses 2 to 6. Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then, will I, uh, then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he was working on, a, on the wheel, and the vessel that he made on the clay was ruined in the hand of the potter, so he made it again, another vessel, as seemed good in, uh, to the potter to make it. 
Then the word of Jehovah came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? Says Jehovah, behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hands, O house of Israel. We begin as formless and as pliable as a blob of clay on a spinning wheel of experience. God's gentle pressures, if we are responsive, then shape us into a vessel that's fit for service. However, not all clay is compliant. Not all clay is compliant. Within a lump, there may even, may even be pockets of clay that haven't yet been moistened properly or blended properly and will not yield to the uh, potter's hand. Sometimes such clay has to be broken into tiny pieces, ground into a powder, and put back into the mud slip. The slip is a term we use for just the, the, all the mud that you put into the, the form the mud, form, form the mold and remixed before it can be shaped into an appropriate vessel. For a couple of years back in college, I actually worked in a ceramics factory. Okay? So I had first-hand experience working with this. I was mudman and fireman in the ceramics factory. The mudman is the person who mixes the mud that goes into the mold. It's a, it combines together the clay and the talc and the water and the chemicals, usually something like sodium silicate, mixes them all up together in a fine paste, make sure it's blended very, very smooth. Then they pour the mud into these plaster parish molds, and the plaster draws the water out evenly throughout the whole thing and deposits the clay around the edges of the inside of the mold. When the, uh, there's been a sufficient accumulation of the clay on the inside of the mold, they dump it out and then break open the mold. Actually, they need to let it settle a little bit so it solidifies first. And then they break open the mold and it becomes this piece of greenware. And that's what the, how the start the whole process. Now, um, after that, <coughs> uh, the, 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 by the way, we call those people who do that the mole people. I don't know if that's appropriate or not. I was the mud man and the fireman. They're the mole people. We also had a master potter and a, a mole maker as well. All these different worlds. It's interesting. You take a whole lot of life lessons from working in the ceramics factory. Okay. Um, each, when the clay accumulated to the appropriate thickness, the mole people would drain out the excess lip and allow the mugs to dry a bit into what we call greenware before breaking open the molds. Now, each greenware mug was inspected, it cleaned, finished, it actually trim off all the extra pieces and uh, uh, wash it down a bit, and allowed to air dry for about a day or so before it was fired in a kiln for eight to 10 hours at over 1,400 degrees. That was my other job. That had to happen at night because it was too hot to do otherwise. And uh, of course, I was up at night anyway, so that was appropriate here. This particular kiln looked like a, a boxcar on a railroad station. It actually was on rails as well. And you pull the boxcar apart and then you load the kiln in the middle, push the two pieces together, and there was uh, gas jets underneath it. You fired up the jets and it brought it up to a temperature of about 1400 degrees or more. And you had to watch that all night long for about eight to 10 hours uh, while the, it fired the green wire. <coughs> Up until the time, um, okay, after they fire it, of course, then you, you dip it into a porcelain wash, and then it'll be fired again a couple of days later to make the nice little glaze that goes on the outside edge. 
Okay, but up until, the up until the time that it is fired, that green wire, though, can be recycled. If, it if, it, if we discover that there, there are flaws in it, if there are bubbles that emerge, if there are contaminants in it, if it becomes deformed or misshapen, or we can break it into pieces and grind it down, put it back into the power, pour it back into the original slip, and, and keep it going again. So it can be recycled over and over and again. Okay. Uh, the artistic or custom-made pieces, though, were actually formed on a wheel. Uh, the master potter would take the, the lump of clay there and put it in the wheel, and, and the wheel would be turning at a pretty fast speed, and his, the hand, the pressure on his hand, would shape that clay, and we would actually see the, the vessel forming. It would rise out of this lump of clay. It was an amazing thing to watch, to see this, this lump of clay just become this beautiful vessel as a result of the, the potter's hand, and how it could make it the thickness, the precision. As a math student, I was really impressed with how the top of the, the top of the vessel did not vary more than a millimeter from the bottom in terms of the walls of thickness. That was that precise in his hands. So it was, it was just an amazing thing to watch. Okay? Um, but as fast as that wheel was turning, he had to be very careful had to pay attention all the time because one slip of the fingers and that whole vessel would be ruined immediately. Okay, it was that sensitive. You know, I took a lot of life lessons, as I said, away from that experience. As you can tell, there's a lot of things where that, that potting experience, that creating the, the clay, actually becomes relevant to our life as well. For example, the life experiences that we have are like the pressures that the potter applies to the clay. They shape us in ways that can ever alter our form, making us either elegant things of beauty or distorted, deformed, and unbalanced vessels only for destruction. However, there is hope, as I said, because it was never too late, at least until you got fired, literally fired, uh, 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 to be broken into pieces and ground up crushed and put in back into pieces and I'll start all over. So from this perspective, we can view what appear to be calamities in our lives simply as corrections in the direction that our lives are going and opportunities to reshape into something completely different. What we're interested in, after all, is the end product. It is the final product that God is interested in. And it really doesn't matter how many times that you have to be broken in order to become part of that final product broken over and over again. Here is where discipleship and lifelong learning come into play. How many people stop learning and just be, become uh, content just to feel? Hosea warns us in uh, four, Hosea 4.6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest to me. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your sons, even I. We should never stop learning stuff, really, we shouldn't. Because keeping the mind active it helps to foresaw Alzheimer's for one thing. You keep the mind active. If you learn something completely different, and as you go along, it will help to forestall the onset of Alzheimer's and other mental illnesses, senility and the like. In Romans 12, uh, verses 1 through 2, 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Why? Because it's going to be something that helps to renew your mind. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind in order to prove to, by you what is that good and pleasing and perfect will of God. Some of us are called late in life, at the 11th hour, if you will, because God knew we were easily malleable and people could form us. Others of us had to be called early because it took a long time to make all the corrections in our lives. Some of us are kind of stubborn that way, you know, resistant to change. But remember, his goal is to build godly character in us, to make us his children, that we may be fit for the ultimate job that he has in store for us as rulers of the universe. Revelation 2, verses 26 and 27. And he who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to, the end, to him I will give power over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and as the vessels of a potter, they will be broken into pieces, even as I received from my father. Notice this, the same image repeats over and over again. Be assured, he, we will fail. You can bet on that. You can bet on that. We will fail. We will sh fall short of the ideal many, many times in our lives. But if we learn from our failures, then we grow in character in the process. Never give up. I, I have this poster in my classroom. It has a picture of a stork that's eating a frog. And just as the frog is about to go down, the frog reaches out his hand and grabs the stork by the neck. Never give up. Never say die. Okay? Never give up. Stay faithful to the end. Always learning. Always growing. Always being that disciple so that we may become his children. I once saw a t-shirt that said as well, be patient. God's not done with me yet. God's not done with me yet. That's a very healthy sentiment to keep in mind. To think of ourselves as a work in progress. A work in progress. A lifelong learner. The truest definition of a disciple. What matters again is not how many times you get broken, but the end product. Will you be a fit vessel to enter into the kingdom? So, the mistakes that we make along the way, eh, those mistakes will have consequences, but they don't matter in terms of the final product. What matters is how much, what we end up becoming as a result of experiencing that and learning from it in the process. However, we should not rely on God <coughs> Here's the other side of that. We should not rely on, on the fact that God uh, is primarily interested in the final product to be lax about obedience. Don't use that as an excuse to try to get out of it. For no one knows what tomorrow may bring, or even if we'll see another sunrise. John 8, verses 31 and 32. And Jesus, then Jesus said to the Jews who believed on him, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. You notice that it makes it contend it makes it contingent it makes it contingent there's a condition placed upon it if you continue in my word 
Then are you my disciple. Then are you my learners. Then are you my lifelong learners. And what's the consequence of that? Then you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Instead of holding ourselves, though, to the impossible standard of perfection, which we can never arrive, let us strive instead toward excellence. Now, what's the key? We need to stay centered. We need to stay centered. We don't know what our, our future job will entail. We don't know what's going to be greater but we, uh, or lesser than what we expect, but we can know it's going to be greater than anything we can currently conceive of. 1 Corinthians 2, uh, verses 6 through 16 tells us that. But we speak wisdom among those who are perfect, uh, who are perfect, not, but here we mean mature with, with the word perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world nor the rulers of this world that come to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery which God has hidden, predetermining it before the world for our glory, which none of the rulers of this world knew, for if they had known, they would, uh, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But even as it was written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yea, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the things of man except the, the Spirit of man within him? So also no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. But we have not received the spirit of this world, but the spirit from God, so that we might know the things that are freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit from God, for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who, judge, he, who spiritual, he who is spiritual judges all things, he, yet he judges, yet he himself is judged by no one. For who knows the mind of the Lord, that we may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. To prepare for that job that God has in store for us, we really need to emulate our elder brother. In order to become more like Christ, we need to stay centered. One way to stay centered is to develop good habits. There is an old saw, practice makes perfect. And that's really incorrect. I don't know if you realize that or not, but that's really incorrect. Practice does not make perfect. Practice makes permanent. Practice makes permanent. Not as nice, not as nice sounding, but it's true, more true. If we practice good habits, then we make permanent those beneficial behaviors. However, if we repeat bad behaviors, then we, they can become just as permanent. For example, if a child is, is not taught at an early age to brush his teeth so he can develop that healthy habit, then learning that habit as an adult can be very, very difficult. In contrast, bad habits are relatively easy to develop. For bad habits carry with them inherent reinforcements, re, uh, some stimulation. For example, if we stop for coffee and donuts every morning on the way to work for about two weeks or so, we could easily develop a coffee and donut habit, just as addictive as some certain kind of drugs, by the way, because the sugar and the fats and the caffeine and in the coffee and the donuts stimulate the brain to produce neurotransmitters such as serotonin and dopamine that activate the pleasure centers of the brain. In other words, the brain rewards bad habits 
with pleasure or else we wouldn't do them. In other words, uh, but the good habits, the good habits, they're not reinforced by anything except the satisfaction of self-discipline. What is problematic about habits is that habits can become ingrained. And once they become ingrained, they become part of our character and the final product of our lives. I'm a work in progress. Okay, my name is Reg. I'm a work in progress. Okay, I am far from finished. Indeed, I'm so flawed that I expect to see this big old stick come down out of the heavens any time now and smash me to pieces and start all over again. Okay, but I am a lifelong learner, and I try to learn from my mistakes. I try to stay centered on that wheel as the potter shapes me into the form that he wants. But it spins awfully fast at times. It spins awfully fast. Sometimes I get thrown off the wheel and crashed in the corner. I ask, what's the condition of your mug? 